The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9, 1030, or 12 in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. So by nature of my role here at West Pines, I get to spend a lot of time with middle school, high school students, and college students. And this generation that gets a lot of bad press has all sorts of labels that are associated with it. And maybe another time we can talk about some of those labels. But one of the things that I affectionately, in a more lighthearted way, describe this generation as, I call them the I'll see generation. That's I apostrophe LLC generation. Here's what I mean by that. You might invite someone uh, who's a teen or a young college student to, to do something. Maybe it's a, this Wednesday. You say, hey, I could use your help. We're doing this or we're moving. Would you be able to come over and help me? Uh, or maybe you say, hey, this Wednesday we've got a cookout. We're just going to hang out and have fun, go in the pool. Would you want to come this Wednesday? Or, hey, this Wednesday we've got this helpful study we're going to be doing. I think it's going to be so helpful to your life. Would love for you to come. But you offer them any kind of invitation, whether it's for their help, whether it's for their, whether it's for their help, or whether it's for just fun. About 82.73% of the time, this will be their response. Just made that up. 82.73% of the time, this is what they'll say. They won't say yes. They won't say no. They'll say, I'll see. I'll see. And so let me translate that for you. They would like you to think that that's, let me check with my parents, okay? Uh, Let me check with them and see. That's a legitimate response. But most of the time, it's not because of that. They say, I'll see, because to say yes is a little bit too much of a commitment, and if they're honest, they're trying to wait and see if in the next 72 hours something better might come up. So they don't want to kind of lock themselves in and say, yes, I'll be there. So they'll say, I'll see, non-committal, right? They don't want to say no because they don't want to just say that to your face. So they say, middle of the road, non-committal, oh, I'll see. I'll see if I can do that. And now every time you hear a teen or this younger generation say that, you're going to be thinking of this moment. But there's something about that. There's something to that that I think taps into a reality that's that's true of all of us, that there's something in us that's not so certain about commitment. Uh, Some ladies maybe just poke their boyfriend on on the arm, right? There's something about us that we're not so sure about saying yes to something and saying this is it. There's something about us that constantly hungers for something better and is waiting for something on the horizon that's next and looking forward to something different and newer. And there's something, too, that that can be good. So, for example, think about all the innovation that's happened in the past 10 years, all the advancements in medicine, technology, good things that have happened because people weren't settling for the status quo and envisioned a future with something better. That's great. But there's a toxic side of that same coin. There's a toxic side in our souls where we can't be satisfied. We're constantly hungering for more, waiting for something better to come down the road and not satisfied and committed with where we are. And Psalm 115 is going to speak directly into this situation and in this, in this dilemma that we often find ourselves in. And it's going to speak to the negative component of that angst of that desire for better and more and new and different. And so I want to read this to you. This is Psalm 115, verses 1 through 18. I want to read this to you, and then we'll reflect on what this is teaching us. Here's what it says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. 
but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols, the idols of the nations, are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. So from this psalm that we just read, this poem, a song, we can begin to gather what was the inspiration, what was it that was happening in this writer's life that caused him to sit down and compose this prayer or this poem. Uh, much like songs today that are birthed out of a, something happening in the life of the writer, something's happening here in the life of the people of God that becomes evident when you look closely at the context. So look at verse 2 again. In verse 2, it describes the nations around Israel. Israel, those who knew the Lord. Whenever you see in your Bible the word Lord and it's all capital letters, that's describing the personal name of God, Yahweh. So the ones who knew the Lord, the God of the Bible, the nations around them are calling out and saying, where is your God? In other words, something has happened in the life of God's people where they're experiencing some measure of pain or suffering or difficulty in such a way that those who are watching, the watching world is looking at their situation and saying, where is your God? Where is he in this? Because when I look at your life, it does not look all that put together. It does not look like the blessed life. It does not look like the life of a God who cares and loves his people. So where is your God? And then the next verse, it says, the response, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. By saying our God is in the heavens, he's not necessarily making a geographical statement. He's making a statement of dominion, of authority. God is in heaven. He is ruling and reigning over all the universe. He is outside of this thing called creation. And he does everything that he pleases. And so even this situation you find yourself in that's difficult and hard, that's causing the surrounding people around you who believe differently to say, where is your God? That this situation is not some mistake in God's plan. This is indeed a, a part of God's plan and so from this environment, from this kind of situation where they're calling into question, where could God be in this situation? He composes this psalm. Now what's interesting is that every single person in this room has either been on one side or the other, or maybe even both of this question. Where is your God? You've been in the situation where either 
Something happens in your life that's traumatic and difficult. Maybe you experience loss or pain, a series of unfortunate events take place. Something terrible happens in your life, and maybe people who believe differently that you're close with or that you know or you work with, maybe they claim not to believe in anything at all, and yet their life seems to be going swimmingly. That here you are facing difficulty and loss and pain, and their life proceeds in what looks like a happy, perfect American dream type life. And so maybe you've been on the receiving end of this question. Well, where is your God? The one that you pray to, the one you say you love and you follow, where is he? Because look at your life right now. Or maybe you've been on the other side of the question. Were you as the one who maybe believes differently or has trouble really believing in anything at all? Maybe you're more of a skeptical person and you see people who you view as religious people who claim to love God and do all sorts of things that have to do with their faith, and you see things around their life that seem to be falling apart or difficulty ensuing, and you look at your life and it's pretty comfortable. And you've got your own challenges. And you might be tempted to ask, well, where is your God? And so from this situation, the author of this psalm begins to talk about idols. And he starts to talk in verse four about the gods that the other nations believe in. In this context, it's describing those who are not followers of Yahweh, not followers of the God of the Bible. And what this psalm does for us is it answers three questions that I wanna raise for each of us. I want you to write these down. If you're taking notes, go ahead and get your pen out. Write these three questions down. If you're not taking notes, find something to take notes with. Here's the first question. The first question the passage is gonna address is what is an idol? I'm going to talk about what is an idol. The second question it's going to address is, what's so bad about my idols? There's an important assumption in that question, the way it's framed. It's assuming you have them. It's assuming I have them. What's so bad about my idols? And then third, what's the solution to my idols? This passage addresses these three questions, and we'll start with the first one. What is an idol? Uh, About a month ago, I saw a picture of the moment when I asked my then-girlfriend, Amy, to marry me. And I saw the picture, and I was reminded of all that led up to that moment, all the planning and shopping at the jewelry store and learning what color and cut and clarity and carrot mean. And um, I remember going through this process, and one thing that I, had, I was totally ignorant on is that when you go into some jewelry stores, the display cases... Uh, sometimes the jeweler will have the engagement rings there, but at the center of the, uh, at the center where the stone is, it, it'll be a replacement diamond that's not actually a real diamond. And they have the real diamonds in the back in some safe, stored up, locked up, but they just have it displayed there. Or, this was interesting, I, I didn't expect to see this. I went into some jewelry stores where you would see a ring setting with all these little tiny diamonds intricately set, beautifully laid out, and then you would see these three prongs sticking up and a gaping hole in the center. And I remember thinking, like, man, what man is going to walk up into this place, see this ring, and be like, that's it? With this, with this giant hole, like something's missing here. And uh, I learned quickly uh, through context and listening uh, that Apparently, jewelers have the capacity to put any type of stone they'd like onto certain rings, and so sometimes all they display is the ring setting, and you can get whatever diamond or other stone you want put in the center. They'll do that for you. 
big diamond, small diamond, whatever kind of diamond you'd like, and they'll put that on there. And so I just thought, and I want you to entertain this thought with me, what if I had planned this beautiful evening out, working towards this moment with uh, my then-girlfriend and uh, planned something so sweet for her and got to the moment, I get down on my knee, I open up the ring box, and inside of it is this ring with a giant hole in the center of it. And as much as I would like to think that she loves me so much that she won't notice it, that she loves me so much it won't be a big deal for her, you better believe she's going to say, looks like there's something missing here. <laughs> there's a giant hole. Is that supposed to symbolize our love? Like, what is, what is this giant hole in the center? Now, with that picture in mind, I want to read this quote to you. Psalm 115, verse 1, this guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon, he was a pastor in the 19th century. Here's what he commented about this verse. He says this, Humanity's honor and the honor of the church are very small matters, but the glory of God is the jewel of the universe of which all else is but the setting. So idolatry, an idol, is to confuse the ring setting for the jewel. Idolatry and to have an idol is to say to something that's designed to draw your attention to the stone in the center, that's designed to complement the jewel in the center, is to insist that the setting itself is ultimate. To assign ultimate value where ultimate value does not belong. That's an idol. That God created the entire universe as this setting in which he intends to display the jewel of his glory and grace and goodness to creation. And when we settle for the things of this earth, when we settle for stuff as the ultimate thing, we are mistaking the setting for the jewel. You know, verse one is interesting. It says, our God, it says, uh, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. One way to define idolatry or, or an idol is it's the opposite of Psalm 115 verse one. Psalm 115 verse 1 says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. To have an idol is to say, not to the Lord, O success. Not to the Lord, but to success give glory. Not to the Lord, O relationship that I am desperately pursuing, thinking that if I just have this relationship, then my life will be complete and everything will be okay. Not to the Lord, but to this relationship do I give glory. Not to the Lord, physical appearance that I'm chasing after and pouring my life out for so that I might look this certain way. Not to the Lord, but to that physical appearance do I give glory. Do I assign ultimate value and worth? I love how one author put it. He put it like this. Uh, this is Tim Keller. He says this to describe an idol. He says, what is an idol? An idol is anything more important to you than God anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, an idol is whatever you look at and say, listen, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. That when we look to something or someone and say to that thing, if I have you, then my life will be made whole and complete. I will be satisfied and have purpose and joy and security in life. 
To, to, to say that is to worship that thing. So idols, what is an idol? An idol is to value and treasure something above God himself. It's to look at something and assign ultimate value and glory. That's an idol. So I want you for a moment to think about your idols. I want you to think for a moment how you would answer or what you would answer to the question, what is it that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? I want you to bring to mind the things that if it's a quiet moment, maybe nothing else going on, your mind most easily wanders off to. It's the thing you daydream about. It's the thing you long for. It's the thing that it's easy to spend your money on. It's the thing that so, comes so quickly to you. I want you to think about what is it that you would say, if I just have this, then everything will be made right and all will be well. I will have security and joy. Or to put it in reverse, what is the one thing that you would say, if I lost this, if this was taken away from me, I would lose any, me any reason to keep living? That's your idol. That's what it is that you worship. And so with those things in mind, here's what I want to do. I want to answer question number two from this text. Question number two, what's so bad about my idols? What's so bad about my idols? So look, maybe I work hard to try and be successful. What's the big deal about that? Listen, success is wonderful. You can do so many great things with success. You know, a ring setting is beautiful and valuable. It's fantastic. It's better than just many things in life. There's nothing wrong with success, but success makes a terrible God. So I want you to think, what's so bad about that relationship that you seem to be endlessly trying to pursue and find, thinking that if you just have that, if you're no longer lonely and you find that person, then your life will be okay. Then your problems will be removed. Maybe it's that substance, that thing you go to over and over and over again for your relief for your source of help. I want you to think, what is your idol? And I want to answer the question from the text. What's so bad about that idol? Look at verse four. Verse four, here's what it says about idols. It says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. So he describes that the idols of the nations in this context, their surrounding nations, they would fashion idols out of silver and gold, literal structures that they would make and form and forge and they would worship these gods that they would make. And they believed that these gods had the potential to bless them and protect them and give them the blessing and provision they're longing for. And he says, these idols, they're made by silver and gold, some pretty flashy and nice materials. And materials of value, but they're made by human hands. And the principle that you know and that I know is that the creator of something is always greater than what they create. And so here these people are worshiping idols that they created themselves, assigning ultimate value to something that's actually less value than they are. So here they are pouring themselves out. Here's the first thing that, the first reason why idols are bad. Write this down. Here's the first reason. Idols deceive me. Idols deceive me. They are flashy and shiny on the outside, but they are made by human hands. Look at verses five through seven. He continues in this way. He says, these idols, they have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. 
So he examines these idols from head to toe. He looks at their eyes and he looks at their noses and ears and mouths and hands and feet. And these idols look like they can do all sorts of things. They look like they have the capacity to do all sorts of things and hear all sorts of things and say all sorts of things and reach out and provide all sorts of things. But then he makes the conclusion. He says they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. In other words, they have the appearance of being able to do all sorts of things, but absolutely no power to provide them. Idols deceive me. Idols make me think that if I will just pour myself out for that thing, then I'll receive that which I long for. And with the appearance that's shiny and tricky and alluring, idols make promises that they simply can't keep. Idols deceive me. And when the time comes when you taste a little bit of it, because the nature of deception is that there is a hook. There's something of pleasure in idols. If there was no pleasure in idols, nobody would be deceived by them. There's a bait. And so that momentary shiny moment where you experience a glimpse of it, that measure of success that just excites you and invigorates you, that moment where you start to see yourself and you feel good about the way you look and you keep pursuing that, that moment when you start to gain the approval of the people around you and you start getting accepted in that friend group you long to be with, there's pleasure in that. But then when you go down underneath the surface, you realize that inside, it's utterly hollow. And idols have this way of convincing you in that moment when you're like, man, this isn't it. Idols have this way of convincing you. You see, your problem is you just need to try harder. You need a little more success. You need to look a little better. You need to work harder. You need to strive more. You need a little more sweat, blood, and tears. You need to sacrifice more for me. If you'll just worship me more, then you will finally receive what you've been looking for. And idols deceive us, constantly putting us on this treadmill of wanting more and wanting more and wanting more and giving us just enough to keep us on the hook. So he examines them and he looks at them and he says they don't have the power to do anything. Here's the second reason why idols are bad. So idols deceive me, and second, idols destroy me. Idols destroy me. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. It says in Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them, speaking of idols, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. That word trust, you might circle, that's a worship word. You might replace that and say, as a helpful way of describing this moment, he's saying, so do those who worship idols. You become like them. To put your trust in something is to say, I am banking my life, my soul, my joy and security and purpose. I am trusting that to you. I am assigning to you my idol, value and significance. If I have you, then I will be good. And... This idea that's laid out is quite profound. And to illustrate it, I want for a moment for you to remember high school physics class for a moment. Some of you are like, no shot. No shot can remember that. But I want you to think about gravity. Uh, Newton's universal law of gravitation teaches us that as two objects get closer and closer to each other, as two objects get closer and closer and closer, as the distance shortens, 
the force of gravity between those objects increases exponentially. So as an object gets closer and closer to a larger object, the force that's pulling it in gets increasing and increasing and increasing at an exponential rate. And there's this spiritual dynamic that's true when it comes to how we worship. But I want you to think of yourself as someone in the equation of gravity for a moment. I want you to think of your soul as something in pursuit of something else, your idol, your God, whatever it is that you worship. And as you worship that thing and as you pursue that person and you get closer and closer and closer, what ends up happening is that as you grow closer and closer and seeking after that idol, that God, what you worship, you start to take on qualities of that thing. It says those who put their trust in idols become like them. Here's the principle. You become like what you worship. You become like what you worship. And that has immense capacity for good. Like if we're following after Jesus and if we are saying, I am offering my life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as my spiritual act of worship, I am pouring myself out in following after Jesus. That as we grow closer to him and seek after him, there's this pull that happens where we become more and more like him. And we start to take on qualities so that we respond in distressing situations as he responded. That his heart starts to become more and more like our heart. And we start to take on his qualities. This transformation happens in us. But just as much as that's a powerful potential for good, when we start worshiping idols, it has an equally negative effect. That as we grow closer and closer to that thing, as we taste more and more and more of that idol and are hooked deeper and deeper and deeper into worshiping and pursuing that relationship, deeper into pursuing that status, that approval, the success of our children, that scholarship, that thing that you seem to be not just wanting but desiring and assigning ultimate value to, that as you do that and grow closer to that, you will start to take on qualities of that idol. Now, what does that look like? What does it mean that those who worship or those who trust in idols become like that? Well, in the context, he gives us a pretty good description of what an idol is. Shiny and flashy on the outside. Something that has all the appearances of being able to do something. Something that if an observer is watching, maybe they look at your life and they might say, man, that person has a great life. On the outside, maybe you have some thin layer of pleasure and this exterior appearance of having your life together, but on the inside, it is hollow and lifeless and powerless. And as we pursue our idols and seek to become closer and closer to them, trying to achieve and pour our lives out for these things, we start to become more and more like them in that we are spiritually hollow and lifeless. We've been put on the hook. We've been reeled in. And every time we hit the wall and we come face to face with the dissatisfaction of it, we're somehow deceived into thinking the answer is just more of the idol. If I just have more, if I just have more, or to exchange it for a different idol. And right here it's saying those who worship them become like them. So if that's, what, that's what's dangerous about our idols, that they deceive and destroy, then what's the solution to them? 
It's the third question that this passage answers. It doesn't just show us the problem and say, okay, figure it out. It gives us the solution. And so here's verses 9 through 15. I want you to follow along with me. Look closely. There's going to be a pattern that you'll pick up on. It says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so he starts in this section having turned from this discussion about idols and making this profound statement that those who trust in idols become like them. He then says, hey, Israel, people of God, those who serve as sons of Aaron, as priests, those who fear the Lord, anybody and everybody who loves the Lord, listen up, don't trust in idols, trust in the Lord. So here's the solution. You uh, might want to write this down. You can't remove an idol unless you replace an idol. An idol won't do to just be set aside. An idol must be replaced with something greater. So here's the solution. An abiding confidence that God is better than my idols. An abiding, gritty, not gonna give up confidence that God is better than my idols. In verses nine through 11, he repeats this phrase to Israel, to the house of Aaron, the the priesthood, to those who fear the Lord, all of God's people. He says to them, trust in the Lord. He is your help and your shield. In other words, your help meaning he's the one who comes through and gives you what you need. He's your provider, he's your help, and he's also your shield. That what life is falling apart and closing in on you, he is your refuge and your shield, protecting and preserving you from the arrows that are flying at you. So he says to Israel, don't turn to an idol as your shield. To us, he might say, don't turn to a substance as your shield to try and make things right, to numb the pain and escape from the pain. No, he is your help and your shield. And then in verses 12 through 13, he describes the, the same groups of people, those, uh, the, the people of Israel, the house of Aaron, the priesthood, and those who fear the Lord. He says, he will bless you. He will bless you. He will bless you. And it says, he has remembered us. God, who is ruling and reigning over the entire cosmos, God who is sustaining the universe in this moment, who Isaiah chapter 40 describes the rulers and the kings, the people of power and prominence in the world as grasshoppers in comparison to the Lord. This passage just said that God is mindful of you, that he thinks about you. Think about how many important people in this world have never even given thought to your existence. And the most important being in existence is mindful of you. He remembers you. He will bless you. He will bless you. And then it goes on in verses 14 and 15. I love this. It says that the Lord will give you increase, you and your children. The Lord, he's the one who will give you increase, not idols. He's the one who made heaven and earth. He's the creator, and the creator is always greater than his creation. 
And so in response to this discussion and this exposing of idols, he turns his attention to God and how God is superior in every way. He's the source of your blessing. He's the source of your help. He's your shield. He intends to be so good that in the midst of your pain, as people are questioning, where is your God? He intends to be the shield, that rock solid peace that provides this foundation that no matter what's happening in your life, he is a sure and steady anchor in time of need. This is the God he intends to be for us. And so an abiding confidence that God is better. You know, I believe that there are some people here today under the sound of my voice, whether watching online or in this room, that the reason you came today is to hear this statement. God is a better God than your career. God is a better God than any relationship you have on earth. God is a better God than that physical appearance you might be chasing after. God is a better God than any measure of riches. God is a better God than anything else you can concoct. He is the jewel of the universe of which everything else is but the setting. And we get to glorify him. And so one of the ways that this gets challenging is that in our world, in our culture, on Instagram, what's trending are all these shiny things to pursue. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it makes this really powerful statement. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Impossible as in you can't do it. You can't please God without faith. You're hopeless if you want to try and please God without faith. And one of the reasons that I believe that that's so true is that our world is full of so many shiny objects that are so easy to latch onto and worship. They're everywhere. And there may not be people physically bowing down at some altar, but there are dads all the time worshiping at the altar of their career, sacrificing, offering sacrifices called their children and their families. There are all sorts of idols in our culture. People putting substances in their body, pounding substances in their body at the sacrifice of their health, chasing some appearance, thinking that if they'll look that way, look a certain way, then God will approve. Then they'll find joy. Then they'll be happy. And in our world full of all these shiny idols that have the appearance of being able to offer us what we need, we have an invisible God that our eyes can't as easily see. And we look around and the people around us are pouring themselves, for, pouring themselves out for all these things, sacrificing for all these things, worshiping these gods of, the 20, of 2019 And faith steps in and says, no, though I can't necessarily see in my face God in front of me. God strictly commanded his people to set up no images of him. Don't make some sort of image of who God is. God commanded his people to do that so that they might not be caught in this temptation of trying to confine the glory of God into what they can fashion. And so faith steps in and says, no, though I can't see it, the one who loves me and created me and saved me, what he has to offer is greater than what I can readily see around me. What he can do for me, he will bless. He will be my help. He will be my shield. This abiding confidence that God is better than my idols. Faith fills in those gaps, sees through the deception, and says, I will not bow down to anyone but the Lord that he is my help and my shield, he will bless. You know, the I'll see generation is actually on to something. Looking out for something better. 
recognizing that there's never quite enough. There's something out there that's got to be better than this. The good news is that something better has come. Hebrews chapter 1, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, you look those up later today, describes that God has ultimately and finally revealed his glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he has shown up, he is better. He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. The jewel of the universe has entered into our story and your story. He's fixed himself to the setting. And he's come down for us. This is what Jesus did for you. He loves you. The irony, the crazy thing is that God would love idolaters. That God would look down on us who have exchanged the glory of God for images of mortal men. And he would enter into our story and redeem us and show mercy and grace. Though we didn't deserve it, though we didn't earn it. You see, one of the reasons why I believe idolatry is so repulsive to God and why it warrants being the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments revolve around this idea of idolatry. And really the root of all sin kind of stems back to this, these idols that we elevate above God. One of the reasons I believe has to be is that idolatry, idolatry is us substituting ourselves or something in the place of God where God alone belongs. When the gospel, the message of Jesus, our salvation is that God has humbled himself and substituted himself in our place. And he has come down. Idolatry is the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of what God has done for you through Jesus. Jesus stepped down from heaven. He humbled himself to the place where God does not belong and was on a cross. He substituted himself in your place. He died taking on the judgment that our idols deserve, that our sin deserves. Jesus Christ on the cross, the perfect one who never once sinned, who obeyed God to the fullest extent, said, I'll take your guilt, I'll take your shame. And he dies as a sacrifice, taking on the full judgment and wrath of God that's due idolaters like us. The judgment that should be pointed at us, Jesus takes and absorbs himself for you. And then he rises up from the grave three days later and he offers us eternal life in his name. So why would we take all these idols? Why would we substitute ourselves or anything else in the place of God when God has humbled himself and substituted himself in our place so that we might be reunited with him and reconciled to him in relationship with the jewel of the universe. Let's not settle for the setting when we can have the jewel. You know, 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, it ends in such an interesting way. It's just short letter, five chapters long, and he describes so many beautiful concepts, but at the end, it seems like he, he almost doesn't aside to end it. It ends in almost a random way, an unexpected way. You don't anticipate it coming. It's not how typical letters end in the Bible, but here's how 1 John chapter 5 ends. And I want to read this to you, and I want you to hear these few words as though it's your heavenly Father speaking to you. Here's what 1 John 5.21 says. It says, little children, keep yourself from idols. What an important, simple caution for us. Little children, 
those whom I love. Keep yourself from idols. They deceive, they destroy. They seek to harm and to destroy. So we have to remember, you can't remove these idols unless you replace them. To dethrone an idol, you have to enthrone Jesus. He's the king of kings. He's worthy. He's the jewel of the universe, and he's invited us into relationship with him. And so I want you to, for a moment, think about that thing or those things that you're pouring your life out for. And maybe they're good things. Maybe they're things that are helpful. Maybe they're things that at one point were just a love for something, but it has turned into something where you've made that thing ultimate in your life. And you've sacrificed, and you've poured yourself out for, and you've worshiped it. I want you to think about that thing. And here's my encouragement to you this week. Pray first, pray Psalm 115, verse one, every day this week and bring out that idol. Say, God, not to us, not to myself, not to success, not to my career, not to that appearance that I'm chasing, not to that relationship, but to your name give glory. It's a helpful prayer to start our days, not to us, oh Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. That's my encouragement, challenge you this week. Make that your meditation and your prayer this week. I wanna invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, let's close in prayer before we sing together. If you could, in a quiet moment, bring to mind those idols. Bring to mind the things that you're tempted to worship and things you're tempted to look to for your identity and your meaning and security in life then right there quietly, would you just admit those to God? It's in your heart, say, God, I've, I've been assigning ultimate glory and value to this. Would you just name it? And then would you pray, God, not to us, not to me, not to this idol, but to your name give glory, Lord. May I experience your grace and mercy know your goodness more and more. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.